0: Today, Snap Nation, I am so excited because we're steering Snap Judgment in a completely different direction. There was a story, a big story that I thought I knew, but recently realized I didn't understand at all. So I did a deep dive, several months, speaking to some amazing people. And this is their tale. Heaven's gate. Sensitive sort of listeners, please note, due to the subject matter, listener discretion is advised.
1: Get it turned on here. Put the mute button off.
0: Nancy Brown is firing up the DVD player in her living room in Chico, California.
1: Here we go. I haven't seen this now, at least for a year, maybe a couple of years. So it's, each time I see something different. This was taken December, 1996.
0: In the video, six or seven people are hanging out in a big, happy mess of Christmas lights and presents. Carols are on the radio.
1: So they're in the kitchen, but they're near the front door. And they're all gathering around to open the door to welcome back my son, David. He's being warmly embraced. It's
0: basic family home movie stuff.
1: <laughs> this is a fun part. See them. They cooks in the kitchen. Quite a feast they're making here.
0: But the people David's cooking with, they're not his family. Not officially.
1: Lots of hugs all around.
0: In fact, Nancy and David's brothers and the rest of David's family, they weren't in the room that day. They weren't welcome.
1: It's fun to see how they celebrated the holiday. They really did. So you see them you know, not as cultists, you know, but enjoying each other as people. And I'm glad to know that he had these things in his life. Because I know that, that he was loved. And that he loved others. And so what more can you wish for your children? You know, that they be loved and have others that they love. That's that's so important to me.
0: Four months later, everybody in the video, including David, would be dead.
2: Topic of news at 11 is a story that's making news across the nation and across the world. Coroner's officials have stopped in the street. They are talking to members of the media. Several dozen of them now gathered outside the van's door trying to get words, any detail at all, on this story.
0: On March 26, 1997, police and first responders rushed to the San Diego mansion, where the bodies were found, and they thought they were all men.
2: You're looking at the site where 39 young men have been found dead and believed to be in a religious. Because they
0: all had the same haircuts and their outfits, they wore 39 matching black homemade uniforms, 39 identical pairs of black decade edition Nikes. In fact, slightly more than half of the dead. Were women.
2: Investigators suspect suicide because they saw no obvious signs of struggle.
0: If there are 39 bodies in there, and possibly more, they're going to have to make sure that nobody was murdered to determine that actually everybody did commit suicide and how that happened. It was just awful. And it would have been unwatchable if the sadness weren't punctuated by so much weird.
3: Sheriff, they all had IDs. Yes, they had a little suitcase with them that uh, uh, had some Things that, like they were going away, one or two $5 bills and some quarters,
4: we do not know why. It appears that they ingested uh, phenobarbital and a uh, liquor uh, as vodka in a solution, and uh, they just uh, drunk it, laid down, and basically went to sleep.
0: It turns out they drank the poison in shifts. Over several days, 15 killed themselves in the first wave, 15 in the next and nine in the last. When one person lay down to die, another lay a bright purple shroud over their face and torso. The last two to go had no one left to lay the shrouds for them.
3: The occupants, it was said, seemed to belong to some kind of cult.
2: They didn't smoke, didn't drink. They were celibate. Uh, They believed they were uh, sent uh, to Earth as angels.
0: They didn't just leave notes behind to say why they did it. No. In fact, they went a step further. They filmed themselves.
2: Two videos taped by the 39 victims showed them saying goodbye, and even citing several saying their bodies will be taken away by UFOs.
1: I just want to let everyone know how lucky and happy I feel to be here, and let you know that what we're about to do is certainly nothing to think
3: negatively about. The group we're talking about here, we know, is a group
2: called Heaven's Gate.
0: I'm Glenn Washington, and this is Heaven's Gate, Episode 1, The Seekers.
3: I'll tell you who I am.
1: Tea and dough, whatever they want to call us.
3: Whether or not you believe is up to you. You, you. We all have to deal with demons.
1: We're going to teach you how to prepare
0: yourself.
1: You are members
0: of the next level. The next level. Over the next 10 episodes, we're going to try to understand What happened inside Heaven's Gate? What made this community, this group who for 20 years loved each other and revered life, what led them to commit the largest mass suicide in American history? Were they brainwashed? Did they go crazy? What twisted? What turned? And who were these people? On the one hand, Heaven's Gate were followers who disciplined their bodies and minds like monks to perfect themselves, to please their Jesus and God the Father, to transcend the burdens of earthly life. They believed they would go live forever in the stars. And on the other hand, these people, these normal people, they were the same warm, caring group of people Nancy Brown watches every Christmas. <laughs>
1: He's got something all over his fingers from, oh, it's chocolate, oh, my gosh. Doesn't that look good?
0: They were curious, smart, accomplished, former pilots and housewives and students, computer programmers and nurses, mothers, fathers, sons, and daughters.
1: We know that we broke hearts. We know that we hurt people. We didn't want to hurt anyone.
0: They had senses of humor.
1: And one last thing we'd like to say is 39
0: to beam up. Thank you. Some, they may even have had doubts at the end. I just felt
3: that conflict of I'm scared, shitless,
0: but I'm going to do this anyway because I don't know what else to do. And it's so important for you to know that suicide was never part of the original plan.
4: But I remember telling people, you know, I'm not going to die.
2: What we're looking at are coroner's officials, scientific investigators, outside the gates of this exclusive home here in Rancho Santa Fe.
0: Those helicopters and body bags and purple shrouds in 97, that was the end of a journey. One that started out very differently two and a half decades earlier, in 1972. It was a journey that started with two people and grew to include several hundred. But almost all of those followers fell away from the group before the end. Heaven's Gate believers crossed America multiple times, sometimes camping in small towns and state parks or building temporary shelters in a desert. Other times, renting houses and apartments and taking day jobs. That San Diego mansion where the dead were found, that was a rental. Sometimes, Heaven's Gate recruited others to join them. And more often, for years at a time, they kept to themselves and tried to follow the spiritual disciplines that they thought would perfect their bodies and their minds. It can be hard to know what the 39 members of Heaven's Gate were thinking. How can you? Well, you start by finding number 40, and number 41, and number 42.
4: That's just one one of my pieces. I can jam my nap for half an hour, you know.
0: This is Sawyer. That's a name he took inside Heaven's Gate, not his real name. We'll get to the group names another time. It's a whole thing. Even before Heaven's Gate, Sawyer says he had always been looking for something more. In the early 70s, he was living in a small commune in a teepee made of logs that he built
4: himself. Because when I was seeking, you know, like dancing with the Sufis and going to meditations where people would say they were seeing lights in the, in the room and I would be falling asleep, you know. I was reading the Bhagavad Gita and so nothing really made sense to me 100%
0: that vibe, that nothing made sense. There's got to be something else. It comes up a lot. Frank Lyford had that feeling, too. He was a Heavenscape member for 20 years. He's a handsome guy with a gentle face. Back then, he was a long-haired, motorcycle-riding dude, more hippie than Hells Angel. I remember growing up when I
3: would look out across the landscape or experience the, the world around me Even as a child, it seemed like there's got to be something more than this. This seems so flat and dingy, almost.
5: What I was like when I joined the group, I had uh, just come out of high school. I think I was 18 or 19. This is Taylor Heises. He's a dancer now. And
0: back then, he was trying to figure out what he was.
5: I was uh, experimenting with psychedelic drugs, you know, looking at altered states of consciousness. And I was interested in that. I was interested in philosophy and religion. And I was also extremely interested in in UFOs and extraterrestrial life and, and had been for quite some time. Okay, yes, UFOs.
0: Everybody who joined Heaven's Gate wound up believing that aliens had contacted Earth and they were coming back. But understand, if you
5: survey Americans in general, half of us will agree, we think aliens exist. I was all about that, and I had a, a, an experience of my own with an unexplained sighting in the sky. A friend and myself were uh, in the hills above Los Gatos, and we saw a mysterious light in the sky, very close in, and we felt like we had an encounter. And it, it was a, a bright light that shone on us. and. At that point I became, I was already very intrigued and wanting to make contact with what I believed were, you know, aliens among us or extraterrestrial beings that were interacting with humans. And so that spurred me and I was just, I remember, you know, like standing out in my backyard, I was living in in the Los Gatos foothills at the time, just like looking up at the sky, you know, asking for, for contact, for connection.
6: Well, it was a real impulsive thing.
5: This is Leslie Light. She
0: also joined in the early days. Back then, she was less focused on the galaxies and mysterious encounters and more on her inner life.
6: I was um, reading a lot of these very esoteric metaphysical books, and I think in retrospect I was trying to be like a renunciate, like I was struggling with my attachments to things because that's what the theme of a lot of these metaphysical books were, is, you know, not to get caught up in attachment and desires. At least that's how I was interpreting a lot of the things I was reading. So in retrospect, I think I, you know, I was young and looking for seeking truth. And I was also struggling with just trying to find my place in the world.
0: That's how these things start, with people with an openness for more. And the space in their lives, in their heads, in their hearts for something different. Unlike the 39 members of Heaven's Gate who died, Thale and Sawyer and Frank and Leslie, they got out. But they're not all happy about it. That thing, the thing that drew them into Heaven's Gate, the attraction, it's still there.
7: I'll
0: explain. In just a moment you're listening to a special snapchat presentation heaven's gate we'll be right back in a moment Welcome back to a special Snap Judgment presentation. This week, Snap partners with Stitcher and Pineapple Street Media to take you inside a story that you may have thought you knew. You don't know. Heaven's Gate.
2: Heaven's Gate was never exactly mainstream, but it wasn't as alternative as we think about it today. So you have to imagine what it was like in, in the 70s when they were forming. Benjamin Zeller is a professor of religion at Lake Forest College. He's also a pretty serious
0: Trekkie and sci-fi fan. That will become more important the more you understand about Heaven's Gate. We love Ben Zeller because no one knows more about the group. And Zeller's book on Heaven's Gate talks not just about the people and their beliefs, but the American culture they were born into.
2: So in the 1970s, this is so much closer to the birth of of ufology and belief in extraterrestrials and extraterrestrial visitation and flying saucers. Ideas that seem far-fetched and out there now. They were a lot more popular 40 years ago. One of the best-selling books at the time was a book called Chariots of the Gods uh, by Erich von Däniken, who claimed in this book that he had evidence that the world's ancient religions were actually founded by extraterrestrial visitors who passed themselves off as gods because that's how the ancients could understand them. This is one of the bestsellers in the 1970s. People gobbled this up. The other bestseller, which we forget about, is Hale Lindsay's The Late Great Planet Earth, which is about the end of the world, and it's an interpretation of the Bible. Lindsay goes through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, foretelling the end of the world. Heaven's Gate is these two bestsellers put together. It's Chariots of the Gods and Late Great Planet Earth combined. It's the Christianity of the end of the world, and it's the ufology of looking to ancient astronauts and and, and, and ancient aliens and putting them together, and that's Heaven's Gate. And that's why when people encountered Heaven's Gate, way back in the 70s, people didn't say, "Well, this is weird. They said, whoa, well, this is what I've been looking for. This is Leslie Light again, who joined in 1975.
6: The way I found out about it was just my roommate said that there was this flyer that was put out at Kenyatta College, which was a, a community college, maybe like Twenty miles or thirty miles in Redwood City—I I can't remember the exact time—but it was close to where I lived, and it was just an impulse and a fling to go. T- you know, I never heard of the people; I wasn't looking to go to any anything, and I just guess I just uh, went.
0: Frank Lyford has a similar story. I lived
3: in Calgary at that point, and I had a girlfriend. Her name was Erica. She just had a really pretty smile and nice dimples and uh, pretty blue eyes and blonde hair and I was smitten. We were contemplating moving in together. We had been together for about three years, but before we moved in, we wanted to go on a vacation. So we decided we would go out west to Vancouver and then head south from there to visit my cousin, David Van Sinderen, in in Oregon. He mentioned that he had seen a poster that intrigued him.
4: Well, it's a poster that has big letters that said uh, UFOs. Who are they? Where do they come from? And when will they leave? This
0: is Sawyer. Again, his group name.
4: So when I read that, the things that stuck out to me was, give you a total energy to it. And that has something to do with people from outer space. And so I was curious. I remember saying to my girlfriend, I wonder what these people are going to look like.
0: And remember, you're just going to a meeting. Not a big deal. No commitment. No signing away your life at the door. Just some new ideas. Maybe something to hang on to. You see the poster, you say, sure. Why not? I'll check it out. Maybe you even go as kind of a goof with a friend. And the meeting is in a church basement or a park. A table set up with wheat, coffee, and cookies from the supermarket. At the front of the room, you see two people. They're calm and confident. Bo and Peep were at the front, sitting at a table, holding court. Bo and Peep. That's what they call themselves. They also call themselves Ti and Do, as in Do, Re, Mi, Fa, sol La, chi. But sometimes, they just call themselves the two, and again, I promise we'll get to that naming thing another time, but in reality, they're Marshall Herve Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles. They're the ones who started this whole thing and they've come to your town to preach a very particular gospel. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about these two and how they started and how their vision of salvation and eternal life changed over time, but their pitch In the beginning
2: in a nutshell they said we are here from outer space we are the two we have come to this planet because we have a special message for you for humanity right now now is the time Only once every 2,000 years does the next level—the next level is outer space, it's it's heaven—only once every 2,000 years does the next level open its door, open its gate, and allow you to come in. And now is the time we have been sent here from the next level to say you have this opportunity to get on the UFO and go to the next level right now. If you don't do it now, you're going to have to wait 2,000 years. Because they believe in reincarnation. You'll have a chance again. But— You don't want to wait 2,000 years. Listen to us now and get on the UFO. That's what they're offering. Everything else you've tried has been good, but they have the way, the path off the mountain. You've gotten up the mountain, but they have the path off the mountain, and here's what it is. You don't have to die. Grave, not path to heaven. I'm looking here at a transcript from one of their meetings. Grave, not path to heaven is what they said this is maybe the biggest, most exciting promise they made. You don't have to die to go to heaven. All you have to do is listen to what they say, follow the process that they teach, and you will get onto a UFO and sail into outer space and get into heaven in bodily form. It's a mashup of the Bible
0: and sci-fi and self-improvement. And yeah, most people, they kind of scratch their heads and maybe ease on out of the back of the room. But for others, this message, it contains everything. It's all of the self-improvement books and trance music and meta-science and spiritual adventure they're seeking. It's all wrapped into one. It's magical. And T and
4: Doe, they're magical. During the meeting, I was noticing that a haze in the room. And it was around the stage, and... If I didn't know better, I would have said maybe it was like smoke or something, you know. It's, uh, but it, it had like the shimmering nature to it. And when this happened, it was like, whoa. And I felt like my life passed before me. Like they talk about when people die, it's have like a near-death experience, like their life goes before them, you know. And it's like everything I, I did before that felt like it had a purpose, that I was in the right place at this point for me. I just took it all in and and knew that this was what I wanted to do.
6: They just happened to say a lot of the things that I had been thinking about and wondering if I needed to do take a a a more a definitive step. You know, you know instead of just thinking about it like it was an opportunity to actually actualize some beliefs that I was beginning to formulate and thought, well, you know, maybe this would be a good experience to see if I was really sincere about going on this path. And I thought, well, what do I have to lose? I'll find out if I really want to, you know, continue in this direction or not. And so it seemed like a choice point. And and I am an impulsive person, and I wasn't that invested in, you know, typical external things because I was detaching from things.
5: It just clicked with me because I remember one of the books I was reading was called God Drives a Flying Saucer, and it, it made all the connections with the, the Bible and and flying saucers or UFOs, including the, the vision of Ezekiel, which many people interpret was probably um, an extraterrestrial craft. Their message really was sort of an answer to a lot of the questions I had, and it just made sense, and I was really ready to walk out the door of my life at that point. Eric and I both were working and
3: not sure of what the direction of our lives would be. We didn't know where where we were going next. We just knew we wanted to live together. And then when this new experience fell in our laps, you know, we saw it kind of as an adventure. We would be Traveling, We would be learning new things. So it was just really intrigued us, pulled at us.
0: Pulled. They're being pulled away. And what they're being pulled from, what they're leaving behind, for them, it just doesn't seem all that great.
5: There's got to be something more than this. Looking up at the sky, you know, asking for, for contact, for connection.
4: So nothing really made sense to me 100%. I was also struggling with just
6: trying to find my place in the world.
0: Now, forget about the UFOs and the space and all of that stuff for a second. Forget about what it would become 20 years later. Right now, in 1975, this is not a cult yet. It's a group. The name Heaven's Gate. It doesn't even exist yet suicide it's not even on the table in fact it's just the opposite they're talking about living forever this is about life it's positive it's exciting and it has all of these possibilities that are so much better than the other options out there and if you kind of squint at it for a moment maybe you can see how you might have been drawn into it too and if you don't think it could have happened to you I'm here to tell you that it could have. It could have happened to anyone. And I know because something very similar happened to me. More on that right after the break. The Snap Judgment Heaven's Gate special continues in just a moment. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Heaven's Gate special, where we step inside the world of a terrifying cult that for its believers didn't seem so terrifying at all. I first heard of what happened to Heaven's Gate at a bar, a fancy bar, watching a television screen with a bunch of people I didn't know. For a moment, everyone froze watching this this jointed newscast about people who had conspired to end their lives together with the tracksuits and the patches and the Comet, all of this stuff. But after a few moments, the other people in the bar, they started moving again, started shaking their heads, talking about the crazies, but I couldn't move. It didn't seem so other to me. Instead, I kept staring at that TV wondering if I knew anyone who perished in that house because I had a secret. See, I grew up with a group that preached the end of days was nigh, that the world would soon be destroyed in a fiery cataclysm, that the return of Jesus was imminent, that if you think we're gonna make it through the 1980s, well, you got another thing coming. We did make it through the 1980s, but our survival, it only increased our fear and our certainty that Jesus' return would happen soon. Our leader, our apostle, Herbert W. Armstrong, he promised us.
3: And they shall see, now notice they will see, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He
0: gave us secrets of the Bible that no one else had understood in 2000 years, didn't he? The Lord chose us, chose me to receive this message. We were special. I was special and we prepared for the end time. Some of us, we took to wearing our shoes to bed at night so we would be ready for Christ's return. It could happen any moment, any moment. I felt like I was Harry Potter and you were all muggles. But then Herbert W. Armstrong, the one that would lead us to meet Jesus in the sky Died.
3: The trouble in my condition seems to be I just do not have enough blood.
0: And my world splintered into a thousand tiny warring factions. Later, I felt certain that if Herbie had given us a potion to meet Jesus, a lot of us in his worldwide church of God, we would have guzzled it down without a thought. And I knew that a lot of us could have ended up in a place like that San Diego mansion where a community destroyed itself in an attempt to find God. So I stared hard at that television in that bar, afraid to see a face I would recognize. Because even as everyone dismissed the wacky people, I felt like after a wrong turn or two, it could have been me in that San Diego mansion.
3: To us, it would be suicide to not leave. So we were about to regain life.
0: We want to point fingers at this crazy bug-eyed guy. We want to believe that he's the Pied Piper, that he's a monster. But they all killed themselves because he took control of them.
5: How do you feel about what is ahead for us? Oh, this is the happiest day of my life. <laughs> I mean, I've been looking forward to this for so long.
0: But they followed him with smiles on their faces, grateful, joyous, at peace.
5: Somebody on the other side of this camera watching this tape would probably say, you're you're deluded or you're brainwashed or whatever. From our perspective, (laughs) this is the answer to everything.
0: One of the scariest questions inside Heaven's Gate is this. When you give your trust to someone, when you join their world and fall into it, how can you tell when it's turned poisonous? How can you know that now, now is the moment I have to get out or all is lost? And now 20 years later, I need to know what happened. In this series, I'm trying to answer those questions and I gotta tell you, I hear some incredible stories along the way, but know this, it could have been me, could have been you. You're listening to the first of a 10-episode series that does a deep dive into the story of Heaven's Gate. And I am so proud. And I hope you subscribe to hear the entire series on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. Creating this project felt it felt personal to me for a lot of reasons. Because, as I've alluded, I grew up in a religious cult that was not too terribly different from Heaven's Gay. And I recently sat down with Jenna Weiss Berman from Pineapple Street Media to talk about how my background in the worldwide church of God impacted our exploration into
7: Heaven's Gay. All right, Glenn. Yes. I'm psyched to talk to you.
0: I'm psyched to talk back.
7: Awesome. Um, a big part of why we wanted to have you host this show and why we're so excited you're doing it is um, because you sort of had similar experiences growing up to Heaven's Gate, maybe not exactly the same. Do you know how your parents first found out about the group?
0: Yes, the founder, Herbert W. Armstrong, he was multimedia before multimedia was cool. He had a... Um, a radio show, a TV show, a magazine. I believe my mother started listening to him on the radio and um from there kind of brought my father along.
7: So did your parents cut off their whole family except their kids basically when they joined?
0: At times, yeah. And you know, terrible things. Like I remember my oh, my pa- my grandparents trying to send us like Easter baskets or Christmas presents which were forbidden according to our religion, and they would throw them in the garbage. Oh no. And um, we wouldn't have contact with them, sometimes for years at a time. And sometimes it would loosen up a bit, but then it would get tight again. I still deeply regret some of those walls that were put up because I didn't grow up with my other cousins the way they grew up together. We were very much apart.
7: Yeah. And how long did your parents stay in the group?
0: Until my late teens, and then the group essentially imploded.
7: Hmm. What happened?
0: The founder died.
7: Oh.
0: Yeah. So again, a very common a story. familiar story. <laughs> <laughs> this whole story with Heaven's Gate has made me really consider like, if he had given us something to drink so we could go meet Jesus, I'm guessing that between seventy and ninety percent of the people would have drank it, and that 's a scary, scary, scary thought and Another reason why I really appreciate it sort of look back it's like what if if we had, if it seems like anything could have gone wrong and we might have been in a mansion in San Diego because there was this sort of slavish belief in Herbert W. Armstrong that he spoke for God. He was an emissary of God. Heaven's Gate touched thousands of people, and only a few went in and did the ultimate act. And that's what they're remembered for, not the rest of the people, but the people who went the whole way. And so I do not it's, it's not surprising to me that there's going to be a zealot aspect to any group of any type.
7: Can you tell me a little bit about how the idea of the like apocalypse or the second coming or whatever you want to call it affected your worldview when you were a kid?
0: You know, there are several recordings of Herbert W. Armstrong preaching. And I was surprised by one recently. And all of a sudden, I hear that voice from the past. And I felt like a kid in those folding chairs in that rented hall. And I felt that. Tension, that fear that you think the end is almost here. That is an interesting sort of condition as a little kid to have. You know, little kids are active. Um, I was generally a cheerful boy left to my own devices, but there was also that darkness because we did think the end was nigh. No joke. I know it sounds crazy, but we thought we didn't have much longer on this earth.
7: How long were you a member of this cult?
0: I was a true believer. I was. I. I had some issues on the edges, but I thought that generally this was the truth until my late teens. Wow. I was a believer. I. I wasn't someone on the outside looking in, which, which to me right now is just stunning that I would... Seed so much of my self and my personhood to an organization, I can only shake my head now when I look back because it really was encompassing. And um, who you are allowed to speak to, especially as a young person, particularly who you are allowed to date.
7: Who were you allowed to speak to and date?
0: Um, in my case, no one, because um, uh, there's a very strict racial segregation aspect in that, Um, Blacks and whites were not to be mixed and such, which was all well and good because I certainly loved the sisters. But in my area, there weren't any.
7: Mm. Were you the only black family? Yes. Oh, wow.
0: And in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area, um, for a long time, we were the only black family. And then there was one or two more. Unfortunately, they had sons as well. So it wasn't...
7: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so there was literally no one you could date.
0: We had to go far and walk. This is what this is what's terrible. There was a see. I lived in Grand Rapids, and an hour and a half away, there was a a black girl, right in the church. Like, oh mm. Lord, and everyone would be like, "That's there's one for you. There's one for you. I <laughs> one option. Like, there's one for you. Yeah. Her father, I believe, was white, and so it was. And it's terrible for her too. You know, one. She's a, she's in the middle of a, of this whole vast sea. She can't do anything, but she flipped the script. She got sent a letter to headquarters in Pasadena, California, where you could get a review of your racial classification and you could get a reassignment, which she did. She took a very, like a lot of flash in it, took a picture, sent it in. And all of a sudden, the only black girl for 150 miles got a letter saying that she was for all intents and purposes now with responsibilities white.
7: Oh, my God. Yep. Wow. So would you say it was a white supremacist vibe? There's
0: there's a lot of white supremacist elements of it. Yes, Mm. absolutely. Um, There's something called the curse of Ham. Um, Noah had three sons in the Bible, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And according to this theology, Shem was a progenitor of the white races Ham was the progenitor of the black races, and um, JPEG of the Asian, because there's only three, you know, there's only three <laughs> only races. Three races yeah. <laughs> and so, but Ham was cursed, and his curse was apparently his skin color. Wow. Now they don't say any of this in the Bible about him being cursed with black skin, but that was that's an old theology, and it didn't wasn't invented by our organization. It comes from slavery days, but it was very heavily adopted hmm. um, and believed by a lot of people.
7: So, what do you think drew your parents, I your did, yeah, your black parents, yeah, to a kind of white supremacist? Cult? I
0: don't know. <laughs> I do not understand what black folks were doing, and there's not it wasn't just my parents actually. Um, there were other black families um, in this organization. At some point, there was actually a segregated, like, all-black services somewhere. In a lot of ways, you know, that mirrored America. Yeah. Um, you know, just like with Heaven's Gate, they were um, very interested in UFOs at a time when America was interested in UFOs. I don't think that in the racial aspect of my organization I'm largely mirrored kind of the racial attitudes of the time. And I was living in a very rural area as well. Yeah, it was, uh, it was wild.
7: Did you ever convert anyone?
0: No. I'll tell you why. I, I was a true believer, but I kind of had some limits to even what I was willing to do. And what they would do is if you were a full baptized member, one of your privileges was you got to participate in a Passover ceremony where you would... Um, wash each other's feet. And I couldn't bear to go to a room and start washing people's feet.
7: <laughs> not you're n- <laughs> not into it. <laughs> so
0: I was putting this off as long as I could my full membership privileges. <laughs> <laughs> so I never felt so before I, I never became a fully baptized member. Hmm. Even though all my friends, I think at the time, were full, but I never went into that basement and I never washed anybody's nasty feet.
7: (laughs) Don't blame you. (laughs) (laughs) And what is your spiritual life like now?
0: My spiritual life is, um, let's just call it open. If I, this might sound self-serving, but I think that what I love so much about story and hearing other people's story and telling my own, is that it's the closest thing that we have to magic. And it's the best way that I know to connect to someone else's divine is by hearing their story. It's like telepathy and everything getting in their head. When you hear a story and you feel like you've had someone else's experience, I think that you're sensing some aspect of the, of the divine. And I can't go beyond that through some sort of spiritual interpretation. But if I have a religion, it's based on that and that empathy of narrative. I want to find me. I want to find an alternate me. I want to see for because my own background has been so touched by really religious charlatans, re- religious uh, malpracticers, malfeasers, and i I'm so and a way grateful to have found um, my way eventually out of that. And I know that it was probably the difference between finding my way out and finding my way trapped is just a gossamer thread. It's a slight wind, it's a butterfly's wing beat from being in a situation where I know I was trapped in a situation where I felt I feel more free. and so for me this whole journey is an unwinding where i can go back and see okay what if i had turned right instead of left could i have been in an organization like that at this and 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 how how would i have responded what's interesting is that i don't have the sense of these people being as much an other as our community at large does because i know i have it on very very good authority because of my background, that I'm not another. I did grow up in an organization that was apocalyptic. And thank goodness that we didn't have to put on tracksuits. Thank goodness that's not how we went out. But I could see it happening. And so I want to kind of revisit the, every single aspect of this. that is something that I'm really intimately interested in. And, um, yeah, see the other Glen. Heaven's Gate is produced by Stitcher in collaboration with Pineapple Street Media. Ann Hepperman is our senior producer and Peter Clowney is our executive editor. Our associate producers are Barry Finkel, Diane Hodson, and Josh Gwynn. Casey Holford is our composer and technical director. Our interns are Osa Secker and Jess Hackle. Dan Taberski is our editorial consultant, scholarship and consulting by Ben Zeller. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Lenski. Special thanks to Jenny Radley, John Asante, Jasmine Aguilera, Henry Malofsky, Chris Barabee, and to the studios, Shine On Studios, Youth Radio, and 25th Street. And a big, heartfelt thank you to the family members, friends, and current members of Heaven's Gate who shared their stories with us. We are so grateful for your openness, your generosity. Tale of Heisen, Carrie Ann, Robert Balk, Jason Bartell, Nancy Brown, Kelly Cook, Steve Hassen, N. Diana Jones, Leslie Light, Frank Leifert, Terry Nettles, Alice and Bobby Mader, thank you, Max Pavisek, Sawyer, and Deb Simpson. I'm in Washington. And one more time, I want to emphasize, suicide is never an answer. If the idea even crosses your mind, please reach out and ask for help. There are people waiting to talk to you One excellent resource is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's free. It's confidential and available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The number is 1-800-273-8255. That number again, 1-800-273-8255. Or just remember, 1-800-273-TALK. Snap Nation, I am so proud of this project. I'm humbled and thrilled by the feedback we've received so far. It's a show that, in the end, is designed to get us talking to each other. The full 10-episode series, a podcast series, is available right now. It's called Heaven's Gate. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Get this one. One love. And even though this is not the news, no way this the news. In fact... You could hear a distant summon from a strange land Demanding a banana split with extra sprinkles right away Only to realize that No, it's not an alien But you might want to set up that nursery Sooner rather than later All that and you would still Still Not be as far away from the news as this is But this is PRX